All right, we move into chapter 2 of Revelation, which is uh, really a different part of the book of Revelation. It's different from chapter 1, and it's different beginning at chapter 4 and going all the way to the end of the book. Because we have two chapters here, chapter 2 and chapter 3, that deal specifically with the seven churches that have been mentioned already in chapter 1. Now, a good question that we can ask this evening, just for the sake of asking it because it's interesting, why are these two chapters here? We already know from the very beginning of the book of Revelation that John has told us that this is going to be a book of symbols, a book of signs, and that type of thing. It's a revelation, it's an apocalyptic type of book. But here, between chapter 1 and chapter 4, you have these two chapters that though they have some symbolism in it, um, it's obvious it's dealing with the here and now. So, why? And there's no wrong answers here. I'm just, it's just something to conjecture. What do you think, Roger? Okay. So what you're saying is he's, he's letting us know that, that this letter is just not a letter that's thrown out there. It's a letter that's going to some specific people. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. All right. What are you going to say, Mike? Okay. In fact, all through these two chapters, every time he gets to the end of his uh, discourse to a certain church, he always ends, finishes it by saying, whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear. Meaning, yeah, we're talking directly to this church, but anybody that hears this, you need to pay attention to it also. And so you kind of get a, a cross-section of all the different churches, and you also get the idea that this was churches that were being heavily persecuted, and so these, this book was uh, specifically for them also. But also I think it's important that we understand and appreciate the fact that we are dealing with real people here. Uh, this was a real serious time for Christians. And this is not just a, a, a book that was written uh, to encourage all of us all the time, but it was written specifically for a group of Christians who are really dealing with serious, serious persecution. And this gives us an insight to what these churches are like. What's interesting, you learn a couple of things. You learn, first of all, that even in persecution, God expects his churches to do right. Persecution is not an excuse. What are you going to say, Julie? Absolutely, absolutely. And, of course, there are some changes that need to be made, and if they don't make those changes, they'll cease to be his church. But... Thanks be to God, we serve the God of the second chance. And if you mess up one time, that's not the end of it. He gives you another opportunity to get things right. And, of course, that's the way the Christian life is. But um, you have chapter 1 with the emphasis upon Jesus Christ being God. And that sets the stage for the entire book because he's the one that's overcome. Well, he's going to talk directly to these churches now and let them know that they too are going to overcome. And then after he finishes with these two churches, then he'll give us uh, this pictorial, if you will, of how they are going to overcome, what's going to happen, what's, what's going on behind the scenes. But you've got to realize who we're talking about first. And we need to understand and appreciate the fact that perhaps this was put here to make us realize that we're dealing with real people, dealing with real persecution, dealing with real problems. Um, these were real Christians, real churches, and all having to deal with the same thing, persecution, as they deal with other things. 
Now, it's interesting, as we look at these seven churches, you're going to discover that basically the same formula happens with every church. First of all, there's an identifying mark about who is speaking, and it's going to be Jesus in every case. And they use the language that was mentioned in um, the vision that John had uh, to introduce each one of these ideas about Jesus. In other words, they take this big description of Jesus and they break it down into the seven churches to let them know that every one of these applies to me and I'm the one who's speaking. And then after he identifies himself, of course, as Jesus, then um, each one of the letters, for the, uh, there's a, 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 a commendation where he says something good about the church. And then almost all of them, not quite all of them, he also has a period following that of condemnation, some things he doesn't like that's going on there. And then there's an exhortation to try to take care of the situation. And then he tells everybody that this is a, an exhortation for all. And then he ends with, with a promise. So you've each one, for the most part, there's some exceptions we'll talk about when we get there, but, but all of them basically follow the formula. Jesus is identified. There's condemnation. I mean, there's a... Con, a can't get that word out tonight for some... Accommodation. Yeah, good combat, yeah. And then condemnation, and then exhortation. There's a lot of shuns running around here. Anyway, but you're going you're to see that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, okay? Um, which brings us to the very first verse of chapter 2, and the very first thing we also want to make some, some conjecture about, where it says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, now, we've already discussed about the angel earlier, and we don't know if this was a literal angel, or if this was the preacher, or if this was a messenger, or if this was an elder. Yes, Chris? A messenger. All right, so Chris's Bible says it's a messenger. We're going to go with that. All right? Because I'm not going to go against Chris. There you go. She gave me the thumbs up. All right, so this was the messenger that was carrying this letter to the church at Ephesus. But here is the first thing I want us to think about. We have a list of seven churches here. Why in the world did he start with Ephesus? Why is Ephesus number one? Why start with Ephesus? And once again, this is just to do some thinking. I like to do some thinking about things and not just look at. What do you, what do you think, Roger? Um, I, you, where do you get that from? Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, there was, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, because different letters talk about different people being certain things, but Ephesus had its problems too. So I don't know, I don't know of any scripture that says that. You might know it. I just, I don't know everything, so you might know something I don't know. If you think about it, tell me later, because I'd like to know about that. That's, that's okay. It does mine all the time. I told you Ephesians 4, 4, and I meant 4, 5 a minute ago when I was talking to you, so it happens. At least it was in the general area. When my... Kids used to ask me where something was found. I said, well, I always get five verses, give or take, and then I could be at the right spot. Um, but anyway, why Ephesus? Why start with Ephesus? Well, let's throw some things out there, okay? Well, I said this is just conjecture, but it's fun to think about these things because it makes you go, huh. Well, first of all, Ephesus at this time was one of the biggest cities in this part of the world, and also one of the wealthiest cities of this world. 
Uh, it'd be a lot of ways. It would be like uh, New York City here in the United States. You know, everybody knows about the Big Apple. Well, living in Paul's day, everybody knew about Ephesus. I don't know what its motto was. Well, actually, it did have a couple of mottos. It was known as the Gateway of Asia, and it was also known as the Marketplace of Asia. The reason why it was called the Gateway of Asia because it had one of the biggest harbors at that time, and all the people coming to that part of the world would land in Ephesus there at the harbor, or if people were wanting to get out of that part of the world, they would go through Ephesus to go out that harbor. Um, now, in your travels, did you go to Ephesus? Ephesus has drastically changed since you were there and since John was there. Yeah, because there's no longer a harbor there now. The harbor's gone. Yeah, mm-hmm. And also, it was the home, and Karen mentioned this earlier, it was the home of the Temple of Diana, or depending on if you want, Artemis, if you want to call it. Ar- what do you call it? Or Dionysus? No, that's, the, that's a different person. Yeah, that's the wine, that's the wine person. Diana and Artemis were the, was, a, was a, a god, and they had one of the seven wonders of the world there at one time, which was a temple to uh, Diana. Um, this area is now known as Turkey, in case you're trying to figure out is, where it is on a map. But because of the silt and stuff coming in from the rivers there in Ephesus, uh, the, port, the harbor is no longer there anymore. In fact, the place where you visit is, is like six miles from the coast now. Uh, but at one time, Ephesus was all the way to the coast, but it, all that's left now is ruins, and it's just about six, still six miles from the coast. But my point in all this is, this is one of the um, main cities in the um, world at this time. It wasn't Rome, but in that part of the world, it was like Rome in a lot of ways. Yes, Jeremy? Oh, no, I'm just, no I'm, just, yeah, I'm just throwing stuff out there, because there's nowhere that says, hey, this is it. Now, I'm not going to say something's the case without having some kind of fact to back up. Do you want to say something else? Okay. Exactly right. Which I'm going to take what you've said and piggyback on it a lot right now. Okay. Ephesus, not, the town was not only famous for what it was, but the church at Ephesus was famous for what it was. I want you to think about the history and the legacy of this church and think about what it would be like to be a member of this particular church. First of all, Paul visited there on his second missionary journey. He only stayed there for just a little bit. But he came back on his third missionary journey and stayed there for three years. Almost three years, longer than he stayed at any other place. And so you think about it. Here is a church that basically had the Apostle Paul as their preacher for about three years. But guess who else was there? Aquila and Priscilla. You ever heard of them? Guess who else was a preacher there? A guy by the name of, of Apollos. You ever heard of him? Guess who else was a preacher there? The Apostle John. Some estimate, estimate that he stayed there for 30 years. It's a long time for a preacher to be at one place. Uh, also think about the fact that um, when Paul finally left Ephesus, who was the preacher he left in charge? Timothy. Who was with John? Not ever mentioned, but we would assume that if he did what he was supposed to do, who was with John? Mary. Who said that? Oh, did they say anything about that in Ephesus? What did they say about that in Ephesus? 
Okay. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, what did he tell John? Look after my, my mother. And so when Jesus died and John ends up in Ephesus, who should have been with him? Now, I don't know if supposedly the tomb of Mary's over there in Ephesus. I don't know if you went over there or not, but this is tradition. We don't know this as a fact, but tradition that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is buried in Ephesus because that would make sense because that's where John was, and when Mary died, that's where she would be buried. Okay? We don't know that. That's just simply uh, a, a tradition. But j- just imagine for a moment being a member of this church, and, and think about some of the preachers that came through here. You know, we, we do get some preacheritis sometimes, and we'll say, well, you know, do you hear about that church over in Texas? Man, they got 10,000 members, and oh, that so-and-so guy, preacher, man, he's so good. Or people might, sometimes might say, well, you know, I was baptized by a preacher when I was living over there. But think about a church that had some of the best preachers that came through there just all the time. Paul was there. Aquila and Priscilla was there. Apollos was there. Timothy was there. John was there. Man, what a, what a group of people to be there. And it's interesting, when Paul gets ready to leave Ephesus, we have him recorded meeting with the elders at Ephesus. We don't have him recorded talking to other elders at other congregations in such an intimate way. But when you get to... Um, Acts 20, you've got Paul having a sit-down before he leaves with the elders of the church there. Like, they, they were people who had a relationship. You get the impression that these were good elders. And as Mike said at the very beginning of the class, of all the churches that we have listed here in these two chapters, Ephesus is the only one that there ever was an epistle written to. Church at Ephesus was important enough that Paul took the time to write a letter to it. So it may be not only is this city one of the well-known cities from a cultural and worldly standpoint, but as far as the church was concerned, people knew about Ephesus. So if you're going to write a church during a time when they were dealing with great persecution and you wanted to set the stage for what you're going to say to other churches that were lesser known in lesser known towns, why don't we start with the big one? Why don't we start with the one that has the masthead of all these preachers that have gone through there? Let's start with Ephesus. Yes, Julie. There you go. Very good. And we can look at it this way. If Ephesus had problems, then we're going to have problems here. You know, no church is excused from problems. Every church has problems. You know, it takes some time sometimes for a preacher to realize this. They think, well, if I go to another church, things will be better. But you have the same problems in every church. In fact, you almost have the same people. They look different, but you run into the same people. And Julie can attest to this, having worked with the congregations before with her husband. You know, they just change the shape of their face, but they've got some of the same people in every church. And you've got to deal with the same silly problems in every church. Um, but even the church at Ephesus had problems, as she said, and that's a very good point uh, to make. Anything else anybody would like to add before we actually start getting the text? But I just think that's interesting. But why of all the churches, why start with Ephesus? <clears throat> I think that's very good. And the Apostle Paul did that with his epistles, too. He would always start his epistles 
with some good things he had to say about the church that he was writing to, but then he'd say, well, let me talk to you about something else. And that's a good way to always treat people. Uh, if you go on the negative immediately, you, all you do is shut up ears and, and um, it usually leads to a fight. Yes, Jeremy. Yeah, and as he brought, brings out there, there's also, anytime there's any kind of religious site with religious artifacts, um, there's also a lot of superstition associated with them also. And, um, and the idea that Mary actually died in Ephesus or lived in Ephesus is all tradition. We have no scriptural evidence of that, but it makes sense too because Jesus told John, hey, that's your mother from now on. And if Mary was still alive, then he would be taking care of her somehow or another, either there or somewhere else. But good point. Uh, anything else anybody like to add? All right, well, let's start looking at the Scripture itself. And the thing that I see when I first start looking at this uh, first couple of verses when it comes to the church at Ephesus, the thing that Jesus wants John to write the things that he wants him to emphasize here in the very beginning, in this very first verse, is both the power and the protection Jesus has over this church, and also the presence and the perception that he has on this church. Here at the very beginning, we're being told something that's very important that every church needs to understand, and that is that Jesus protects your church, that Jesus uses his power to do this, that Jesus is in the church, his presence is there, and also while his presence is there, he's also taking inventory, if you will. He's being very perceptive. Okay, that just works good with the alliteration, all the peace there. But anyway, so look what he says in the first verse. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So here we've got Jesus being identified. It uses the identification that was used earlier in chapter 1. It takes one of the little sections and pulls it out that John saw in his vision. And this aspect of the vision is we see a picture of Jesus, and he's got the seven stars in his right hand, and he's with the lampstands again. The King James Version says candlesticks, but it's lampstands. All right, what did we say that the seven stars in the right hand meant? Because the Bible tells us. We don't even have to guess. What does that mean? The seven churches. What did you say? Oh, the stars? Well, that's it. Stars, that's right. Seven stars in his right hand. Oh, I mean, the angels. But they represent, but they represent the, the seven churches, though. That's what I was talking about because they are the angels to those seven churches. I'm sorry, I, did, I didn't make that clear. All right, they're in his right hand. In the, in the King James Version, we've got he that holdeth the seven stars. Uh, some of your translations might have something a little bit different, maybe have keep. The actual Greek word is the idea of to hold something firmly, okay? Firm grasp is the Greek word. What would that lead you to believe if he had a firm grasp on these seven stars? He's not going to let go. He's going to take care of them. He's going to shelter them. He's going to protect them. Right hand symbolizes power. They're in his right hand. They're, he's, they're being protected by his power. Okay? Now, if you look very closely at verse 1, 
and the description you have of this exact same thing in chapter 1, there's something that's different, though. You've got to look real close, but it's very, it's different. There's one word that's been changed. Look at the description that uses the exact same description in chapter 1 in describing Jesus. But this time when they describe Jesus, what? All right, he walks among them. What was he doing the first time? He was standing among them. All right, why the change? Well, to let us know that he's just not standing uh, there and there's churches surrounding him, but he's actually in the presence of these churches. He's walking among the churches. In other words, I firmly believe that Jesus walks among this church in a spiritual sense. And so that lets us understand and appreciate the fact that Jesus' presence was in these churches. They were not alone. No matter what they were facing, they were facing it with Jesus in their presence. And you remember earlier in chapter 1 how he gave John three assurances that he was the first and the last, how he was dead but now he's alive, and how that he now has the gates to Hades, or holds the key to uh, the gates of Hades and death. This is the one who is walking along these churches, walking with these Christians who are facing these same problems. But also it would make sense, and this is brought out when you start looking at his description of these churches, if Jesus was in the presence of these churches, what would be the obvious thing that would be the case? If he was there, he could see what's going on. He could tell if a church was acting the way that it was supposed to act, or if it was doing good or if it was doing bad. Um, there was an old song many years ago that was a stupid song, and I don't remember all the details about it, but the name of the song was Elvis Was Everywhere. I don't know if any of y'all remember that song. Elvis is everywhere. Elvis is everywhere. Anybody y'all remember that song? Nobody remembers that song? Do you remember it, Steve? Well, at least somebody remembers it. He has a more musical background than some of y'all. Y'all didn't think Mayor McCheese was real, but he was real. <laughs> but there was a song called Elvis is Everywhere. Go look it up on the internet sometime, and you'll see the words to it. <laughs> All right, I think what he's pushing for. But anyway, um, but in reality, Jesus is everywhere, right? Jesus is everywhere. And that's the point that's being made here, that if Jesus walks among the lampstand. He's just not a figurehead for the lampstand. He's not just someone who's standing for the lampstand. He is walking among those lampstands. He is walking among the, what you got, Karen? Um, <clears throat> all righty. But anyway, to get back to the point on hand, we need to make sure we appreciate from the very beginning before he starts talking to the church at Ephesus or talking to any of these churches that Jesus has the power to take care of them and Jesus is actually there in the midst of them. Uh, Jesus is here with us each and every Lord's Day. He's with us when we meet. Uh, Jesus is always with us and we are reminded of what the writer of Hebrews said when he said, um, you know, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Jesus is always going to be with us. Um, one little interesting side note here, and this won't be on the test, but I don't know if it was something that was intentional or not intentional, but they have discovered 
a coin that was made during the time of Domitian's reign that has a, on the front of the coin, Domitian's son, and Domitian's son has in his right hand star constellations. And when I think about that, I think about how in the book of Revelation, even at the very beginning, Jesus is showing his superiority over, over um, Roman rulers, the Roman Empire. And I almost wonder if maybe this particular figure was used to hold the seven stars in his hands to prove Domitian's not the ruler, I'm the ruler. And I just thought I'd throw it out there. Like I said, Scott, it won't be on the test. You don't need to remember that, you know, if you don't need to. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting little uh, anecdotal information there in case you wanted to know that. But you get to uh, verse 2, and it says this. It says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. All right, at the very beginning, uh, Jesus says some good things about this church, some very good things about this church. I hope he would always say this about our church. And I can just imagine if you were one of the members at Ephesus and they were reading this letter to you and, and they got to this part and they said, boy, he sure got that right. Boy, that, that's, that's a good thing to say about us. But notice what he says. He, first of all, he says, I know. And, and the, the Greek here is the idea that he knows this perfectly. There's no doubt about this. This is a complete knowledge. I know thy works. Uh, King James says, another way you can translate it is deeds or, or your actions. Uh, these are things that this church were doing. He says, I know what you have been doing. And he means this in a positive way. This was a, an active church involved in a lot of good works. And he's not being redundant when he says, I know thy works and thy labor. Labor here in the Greek is the idea of the effort they put forth. They have works, but they were working hard at their works. Okay, Whatever they were doing, we don't know what they were doing, but whatever they were doing, they were doing it, and they were doing it really well and working at it really hard. Um, the Greek word here can be translated uh, to work to the point of sweating or working to the point of exhaustion. So these weren't just people who were saying, well, we've got these different programs we're going to start doing. Uh, these were people who followed up with those programs and worked them hard. In fact, the next word carries this even further when it says, and thy patience. Patience is not a good translation here because when we think of patience, we put, think of putting up with something. What does yours have? Endurance. Perseverance. It's the idea that they kept at it. They did not stop. Even when they got exhausted from working so hard, sweating, sweating up a storm, they kept at it. They would not give up these works they were doing, whatever these works were, feeding the poor, helping widows, we don't know. But whatever they were doing, Jesus is giving them praise for it. And then he goes on and talks about how that they could not put up with evilness in the church. And this evilness evidently was false teachers. And it goes on and talks about how that there were those who claimed to be apostles but weren't. In fact, they were liars. But the key to the whole verse, what Jesus is praising them for, 
is where it says in the King James, thou hast tried them. Just curious, anybody have anything different other than tried? What you got? Tested. There's the key word. They tested them. So somebody came into their church, and we're going to discover some people who came into their church in just a moment. And they claimed to be an apostle and claimed they had the authority to make things a certain way or teach certain things. The way that the church at Ephesus stopped that was that they tested them. So let's ask the question, how did the members at Ephesus test them? You think they gave them one of my tests at the end of the class and said, do that? What? All right. All right. That's the part of it. They could find out what they actually knew. What are you going to say? Well, a, a, a person could still, they still do this today. If somebody comes in and says, I'm an apostle in this day and age. And um, somebody could come in the church of Ephesus and say, I'm the, I'm the apostle you never heard about. My name is Joe. I'm Joe the apostle. Okay, and um, evidently Paul knew that this was going to happen because when he was talking to the church at Ephesus, to the elders, uh, he tells them that there is going to be some people that's going to come in your church. They're going to come in dressed as sheep, but they are wolves. And so a person's going to come in being all nice and spiritual and whatnot and pretending to be an apostle when he's not actually an apostle, he's a liar. But let's get back to what we need to make sure we understand. How would they test them other than say, I don't, I don't see your apostle card. Where's your apostle card? What, Jeremy? Okay. All right. See how they defended their apostleship? All right. Well, let me say, let's see if we could do it today. If somebody came in today and claimed that they were Apostle Joe, uh, when we got through laughing, what would we say to them that we know that they're not an apostle? All right, there's one thing that works. That's the test. You passed the Jesus test. You had to see him resurrected test. Yes, Jeff? There you go. That's why I was trying to lead you all down the primrose path on. Keep in mind that during this time period before the Bible was complete, and we don't know how much the Bible was complete. It might have been all of it was complete, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But prior to the completion of the Bible, if you were an apostle, what did you do to prove the things you were saying were the word of God by miracles. Miracles had their purpose in healing people. Miracles had their purpose in feeding people. But the main purpose of miracles was to confirm the word of God. Read the first four, chap- first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. That's what it says. The words that we spoke were confirmed by signs and miracles. Okay? If they claimed to be apostles and what they said was the word of God... Let's put them to the miracle test. When we lived in Cleveland, Tennessee, the the Church of God headquarters was right down the street from where I was preaching, and I would talk to some of their people, and I always put them to the raising the dead test because, you know, they claimed they could do miracles and whatnot. I said, well, I want to go out to the graveyard with you and raise some dead, and they always would say, well, we can raise the spiritual dead. Well, I can do that. You know, put them to the test when they claim that they have miraculous gifts. Well, they probably did that. But to get back to what I said earlier, if the scripture was completed by now, if all the books of the Bible were now completed except for the book of Revelation, what could they do? They could, well, I'm saying from the point of testing that person. 
If they said something that was unscriptural, what would you do? Well, I'm sorry, sir, but it says right here that it's not that way. And this is the word of God. What would we do today if somebody did, came and did that? We do the exact same thing. We wouldn't ask the person to do a miracle. We could, but we know we couldn't. But the better way to prove that he's not who he says he is and he's teaching a false doctrine is this, well, you're violating what plain scripture teaches. And so Jesus is giving them the uh, praise here because they were a hardworking congregation. They worked themselves to the bone and they wouldn't give up. And when false teachers came into their church, they tested them. If somebody claimed that they had some kind of new revelation or had some kind of new word of God, they tested them, and they proved them that, no, you're wrong. You're nothing but a liar. And if somebody says that God came and talked to them, and somebody says that they can do miracles today, and someone says that God tells them something different than what the Bible teaches today, folks, I have no other way to say it. But they're a liar. They're a liar. And that's what they're doing here. They're pointing out the fact, no, you're not right. You're a liar. And so Jesus is praising them for that. In fact, he goes on and emphasizes it in verse 3 where he says, And has borne and has patience for my namesake, has labored and has not fainted. He's giving them the double praise here. This is a hard-working, uh, doctrinal straight, get rid of the false teachers. We're not going to put up with that junk kind of congregation. Everybody see that? But boom. Next thing hits them, and it's going to hit them hard. What does he say after giving them all this praise? In verse 4, it says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Woo! Can you imagine Jesus telling you that? Jim, you're doing pretty good, but listen, I got something against you. Mm, that'd be rough. Can you imagine once again sitting in the pew there and you're listening to uh, this messenger that John sent with this letter, and you're hearing all this good stuff. Yeah, we're hard workers, man. We're, we're doctrinally sound. We're getting rid of them false teachers. We don't put up with any of that false junk. And then you get to this part. I've got something against you, though. He says, because thou hast left your first love. Little translation is, you do not love as you did at first. Yes, James. Okay. Very good, and I think that has something to do with it. He wants them to remember the love they had at the beginning is literally what's going on here. Now, you can open up different commentaries, and different commentaries will say, well, they've lost their love for God. Well, that may be, but this doesn't fit, suit me. might be what has happened. Or they lost their love for Jesus Christ. But once again, that has something to do with it, but I don't know if that's entirely it. I think what's going on here is they have forgotten what it means to love. And to piggyback on what Jamie has said here, doctrine is very, very important. You have got to be someone who holds true to the doctrine. Um, we can't ever give up the faith. It has to be scriptural. It has to be something that we always follow and make a stand for. But yet at the same time, if we're not careful, it'd be very easy to be like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Oh, they, were, they had it down pat as far as what it meant to be spiritual. 
Uh, they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. In fact, to make sure they were spiritual, they even added some other things that God didn't ask to add. But when it came to love, they didn't have any love at all. All they did in their entire lives was trying to find out what was wrong with somebody else. Yep, all about the intention. And we've got to be very careful. We've got to find the right kind of balance. As we saw here at the very beginning, and Jeff pointed this out, you, don't, you, don't, you want to correct what is wrong both in a church and in people, but you also got to find the good, and you got to find the positive. It's very easy for a church to become a heretic detector and spend all their time being a heretic detector that they forget about what Christianity is all about. And that's more than likely what Jesus is talking about here. But it's not just that. They have gotten everything down to such a science and such a formula that they have lost what it means to be a Christian and the joy of Christianity. I imagine the church at Ephesus had the most perfect worship service you'd probably ever seen. Them being a big church and having the big-time preachers they had there, I bet they had one of the best song leaders they ever, you ever seen. They could probably do those Gregorian chants up and down. But you know what was happening, I bet, in that church? There was a lot of people just sitting in the pews going through the motions. Um, when it came to Bible study, oh, they had Bible study and probably had really good Bible study. But that's really all it was. It was just Bible study. It really didn't make it. Oh, sign up again. Why do you all keep moving that clock? I'm so sorry. Well, it's because you forgot your first love. Um, but anyway, um, so we do need to stop. But I think you see the point that I'm making, so we can go ahead and close out this verse. Um, well, I don't want to close out this verse. I'm going to come and say some more about it. So we'll just stop there, and we'll talk more about it next week. There's just some other things I want to say. Thank you for your comments and your attention.